The Office of Personnel Management will take a new approach to close what it says is a gender-based pay gap in the federal workforce. OPM wants to bar agencies from using candidates' salary history to determine their pay in government. Advocacy groups laud the efforts from OPM. Others say issues for federal pay run much deeper. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has more. And Drew, tell us why this is coming up now at this point in history, and they're really talking about someone's salary history, and how does that figure into the whole equation? This, Tom, is a couple years in the making. The initial requirement under President Biden's executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility asked OPM to look into pay equality or pay inequities within the federal workforce. And this is something that OPM has addressed in its strategic plan as well. They're looking at ways to basically close that pay gap that exists between men and women for similar positions within the federal government. The idea with the salary history and why agency, why OPM says agencies shouldn't be using that when determining pay for new hires is because there is this historic separation between white men disproportionately making up more senior level positions within the federal government or in the private sector as well. So coming into government, they're They might have a little bit more of an advantage when agencies are setting pay. So if you remove that from consideration, this can make a little bit more of an even playing field for those who might have been disadvantaged in the past. All right. And what do they know about the size of this purported gender pay gap? I mean, the question is, if a man and a woman are in the government, say they're both in for 12 years, both at the GS-14 level, both doing similar work, do they make different salaries? if they entered the government at the same time with the same level of experience? That's a good question. The gender pay gap that exists within the federal government really more comes from historic perspective. So because white men for a longer period of time have made up levels that are higher on the general schedule pay system, that means they've had more years of experience, more time to get to those higher pay levels, while others disproportionately make up uh, lower sections of the general schedule that includes women and people of color, whether or not they are male or female. So if you're looking at numbers, there was a 5.6% pay gap between men and women on average in 2022, if you look at the federal government as a whole. And that's compared with 16% in the private sector, where you might see a little bit more flexibility in the way that employees are paid. Okay, so I guess, you know, the proper form of hiring should take care of this over time. Maybe it would take another decade or so. And so what is OPM proposing? What are their new regulations all about? New regulations say that agencies cannot use previous salary history of a job candidate who is entering the federal government for the first time. So this applies actually to both candidates for federal jobs that are entering the federal government or those who maybe were in, in a federal position, left the government, and now are now coming back. So the question is, you know, where do you look instead to determine pay for new employees coming into government? And that's really going to come down to assessing skills and other qualifications of these job candidates. But doesn't the GS system pretty much dictate what you're going to get paid. There's a table there that is publicly accessible. And if you come in as a GS-12, you're going to make within a certain range and that's it. Right. It's a matter of, you know, there is a bit of a range when determining someone's skill level or their qualifications for a position when they first come into government. And this is a matter of, you know, looking at their actual qualifications for the role rather than maybe what they were paid for a similar position, maybe in the private sector. So it's just looking more at 
skills. That's the idea that OPM is taking here rather than, you know, how they were compensated or how they were valued. So in other words, if someone comes for a job and they have a certain level of experience, you don't know what they were earning, but you figure they're about a GS 13 level three, and that's what you offer them without regard. Of course, they might've been making $300,000 outside of government. So they're coming in at a cut, but whatever it is, you can't bias it by knowing what they earned earlier and offering them low or more. I mean, it cuts both ways. Right. And there is also a question of agencies because they can't ask job candidates for their salary history during that process. You know, candidates could potentially still offer that information during a job interview or during the hiring process. So the idea with the regulations here is to really just across the board, take that out of the picture. And notably, there is an exception to this. If a job candidate has a competing job offer, agencies can then make a counteroffer. So in that case, they can use the salary history. But in those instances, they still have to consider at least one other factor when setting their pay. And everything OPM proposes has a chorus of people that are both for and again it. And there have been advocates of not having salary histories part of the discussions for some time now. They must be thrilled. You could say that, Tom. The Department of Justice Gender Equality Network, they are a group of employees who advocate gender equality through pay and other workforce areas. And, you know, once they knew that OPM was kind of planning to propose these regulations sometime last year, they wrote to OPM calling for a full ban of the use of salary history rather than just banning agencies for asking for it. So their response to this proposed regulation that really encompasses that idea and takes a bit of a stronger view on the topic was very much welcomed by them. And then the pay system itself has been under some level of scrutiny and critique now for a couple of decades, even though it seems impervious to being changed. But some of those being talked about at all? There is a a little bit of a deeper issue here with federal pay, at least according to a lot of people who are familiar with the topic. Even though agencies under these proposed regulations would not be able to look at salary history for those first coming into government, the question is also of, you know, what if there is a current federal employee who's up for a promotion, up for uh, just moving up on the general schedule, And in those instances, you can look, of course, at salary history or where they were on the GS scale previously. So I think there it does bring up a question of a bigger potentially need for reform. There's also, you know, the way that uh, many employees move throughout their careers goes back and forth between the private and public sector uh, and you know, advocates of pay reform for the federal government have said that the general schedule doesn't really adapt to this more modern approach to how people's careers are are playing out. Sure. So the rules are out. And what is the timetable here for commenting, finalization, and then going ahead with it if they do? Those proposed regulations from OPM are going up on the federal register today, and anyone will have 30 days to offer comments or feedback on the proposal from OPM. I imagine there's going to get a lot of comment. You know, there's HR societies and trade associations of personnel and what they used to call personnel. Now they call human capital types of operators. So I think they're going to get a lot of comments on this. There are a lot of people who care a lot about this issue. And I 
you know, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how people respond to these these proposals. And by the way, discrimination in pay based on gender or any other factor other than the person being qualified is already verboten, correct? Correct. Yeah, that is, you know, illegal. But of course, there are some underlying factors. I think that's where OPM is trying to get at here that affect that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more. 
and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.